This is episode number 733 with Dr. Yannick Kilcher, CTO at Deep Judge. Today's episode is brought to you by Garobi, the decision intelligence leader, and by Cloudwolf, the cloud skills platform. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's guest is one of those huge names in our field that it blows my mind that I get to talk to him at all, let alone record a deep and fascinating conversation with. If you're not already aware of him, Yannick Kilcher has over 230,000 subscribers on his machine learning YouTube channel. He's the CTO of Deep Judge, a Swiss startup that is revolutionizing the legal profession with AI tools. He led the development of Open Assistant, a leading open source alternative to ChatGPT that has over 37,000 stars on GitHub. That's crazy. And he holds a PhD in AI from the outstanding Swiss Technical University, ETH Zurich. Despite being such a technical expert himself, most of today's episode should be accessible to anyone who's interested in AI, whether you're a hands-on practitioner or not. In this episode, Yannick details the behind-the-scenes stories and lasting impact of his Open Assistant project, the technical and commercial lessons he's learned while growing his AI startup, how he stays up to date on machine learning research, the important broad implications of adversarial examples in machine learning, and where the biggest opportunities are in AI in the coming years. All right, you ready for this terrific episode? Let's go. Yannick Kilcher, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It is unreal to have you here, a dream come true, truly. Where in the world are you calling in from today? In Zurich. Uh, thanks for having me. Nice. Yeah, my pleasure. I had a couple Zurich trips earlier this year, and they were both perfect. One was for skiing and had absolutely perfect skiing conditions in Closters Davos. Yeah. Um, and that was incredible. It was like blue skies, but lots of snow, not too cold, just what you want. And then I was back um, in St. Gallen for the St. Gallen Symposium in the spring. And it was glorious, warm days. You could be outside during the symposium. And they said it had been 10 years since that had happened. <laughs> really? Okay. I feel the weather is uh, Switzerland. You know, Londoners always complain about their weather. I personally feel like Switzerland weather is nearly perfect, at least for me. So. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to go the other way. No, it's it cold like in winter. Time. You know, yeah. it's it's nice in summer. It's rainy in in fall, which is really kind of nice after a warm summer. So yeah, you're preaching to the choir here. I I have this like vague fantasy of like retiring in Switzerland. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a tricky passport to get though. It is. Um, cool. Yeah. So let's jump right into the technical content we have for you. We have tons planned. So first I'd like to talk about your open assistant. Mm -hmm. um, so in April, you, along with a team of multinational ML practitioners, you submitted a paper called open assistant conversations, democratizing large language model alignment. So can you explain what Open Assistant Conversations is, 
Yeah. And what does democracy and alignment have to do with LLMs? Open Assistant was a project that it was born out of a desire to replicate ChatGPT. So when when ChatGPT came out, there was really nothing in the open source space that was even remotely towards that direction. Um, <clears throat> people had some ideas and there were some efforts of, hey, let's just use ChatGPT to create data for, for something, but there was really nothing. And I think the idea of, hey, let's make something in, in open source, it's, I mean, it's fairly straightforward, right? And we, I think we just grabbed the momentum and organized around that. And the main part of it is data collection. So we knew that in order to get to, you know, to get ChatGPT to be this assistant type model, they had to have collected some data from humans in order to do that. We were going off a paper called Instruct GPT that was released a few months prior that sort of showed considerable benefits of this, you know, collecting human data first and foremost, and then fine tuning on that, and then doing the reinforcement learning on top of that. And the crucial part, I think, that was not available to the open source community was, well, first of all, kind of the base models were not available. Um, and second of all, mainly the data sets were not available. So we knew that OpenAI has gone full business and uh, doesn't release, didn't even say how they did it exactly. So our mission was to collect human data. And yeah, we, we, we built that, we built a platform, we built um, you know, software where you could submit your data and people came and contributed data. And we also trained some models on top of that, obviously, and those became cool chat assistants and so on. I would say, you know, I would say it was a really special time. Um, it was a, a time and place where the momentum to gather such a data set was really given and people came and contributed. And I th think we realized that and we wanted to make the best of it. Uh, we want to make the best of that momentum. And yeah, we, I think we captured that. And I think what lives on from the project is the data that we collected. The models, they're fun, but other people can train models too, right? Like anyone nowadays, especially with, you know, super cool open source base models and low rank adapters and whatnot, it's super straightforward to, to train a model. So I think the main success of the project is the data we collected and, and are still collecting actually, although I mean, obviously interest has waned, let's say, and people move on. Yeah, it was, it did make a huge splash when it came out. It was something that um, it seemed like everyone was aware of your open assistant uh, release in. Uh, you were the face of that in some ways. I know that there were a few dozen contributors, but um, yeah, it was kind of your announcement on YouTube was the first place that I noticed it. Um, and yeah, and to, yeah. to be said, like I'm mostly the, the noise maker, right? Um, <laughs> so there are people who have also contributed, uh, considerably more work than I have. So I, I don't want to take any credit away from all the rest of the contributors. Um, it's mo mostly, I, I use sort of the platform that I have to popularize it. I see. And one of those people is Louis Tunstall, right? Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah. we we've had contributors from all over, including Lewis from from Hugging Face, um, and in fact, Hugging Face has also sponsored the project quite a bit, especially once we actually trained model and then had to or wanted to make them available to people to try them out. Hugging Face was a, a big sponsor of that as well. And so oh, the nice, people yeah. and the company were contributing, which is very cool. Yeah, yeah. And so he was in episode number 695. And uh, it's an absolutely amazing episode on using transformers for NLP, as you'd expect from him as yeah. a great author on that topic. Um, yeah, so how optimistic are you that as these systems get more powerful, uh, whether they're open source like yours was, um, or they're proprietary, how much of an issue do you think alignment is in the coming years? I guess it depends a little bit on what alignment exactly means then. So I think the variant of alignment where it's, this is an assistant and it should do what you ask it to do. I think that's, you know, just from a practical perspective, it's super valuable to have, you know, to not, to not have to put huge efforts into prompting exactly the thing you want, but just like you had a real human assistant, be able to just give it a task and it will kind of understand what you want and do it, right? At the light, right level of abstraction with the right amount of, you know, volume, like not too much work, not too little work, that type of alignment I'm a I'm big fan of, right? Then there's the other type of alignment where we can say, well, can we align it such that it, I don't know, doesn't destroy us at some point or has our ethics or something like this? I don't really know how to engage with that discussion necessarily because it tends to go off into super philosophy mode almost instantly. Like after half a sentence, you're in, oh no, but the Mesa optimizer can self-optimize uh, beyond transhumanism and <laughs> like, I don't know how to engage with that. Like, honestly, so, I mean, for, for sure, it, it's probably better to have, to have like a business friendly model that sort of complies with, with human rights and, <laughs> and, and, and proper language than it is to have not. But beyond that, I really don't know. Yeah. That is something that I, I see you personally, and I don't know, I don't know how much this is. I don't know exactly where I pick this up, um, but I have this impression. I kind of see you as actually one of the leading figures in uh, banging the drum the, of being lead noisemaker, as you say, of you know open source LLMs and um, the the philosophy. I know we don't we, we don't want to get into philosophy, but <laughs> but the philosophy that open source is better than proprietary. Um, LLMs and that's um, so th I mean there's there's obviously two big camps on that so some people would say well proprietary is better because that means that if these systems become really dangerous then if they're proprietary we can control who's using them and then the opposite kind of camp which I believe you're in is that it's like well we should be open sourcing everything we can that way just like any other open source software project you can have as many eyes as possible understanding um, where the risks are in the system. Yeah, and I think history has pretty much in 
almost every single case been with the second camp like what 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 strange idea is this that if it's proprietary will be able to control no if it's proprietary the proprietor will be able to control the rest right they'll be able to control the the reg like now like every big regulation that comes out is completely drafted and lobbied by the big proprietary com like providers of whatever is being regulated this, there are there are people who benefit personally greatly from sort of banging the the doom drum on this on one it's certainly the big companies like open ai being like oh no one else should have it right that's their take so we should introduce a, as much regulation as we can so we make sure that no one catches up with us essentially and then the other group of people are just the general the general people who kind of get clout because they have really out there opinions like all the the doomers and all the the forever criticizers and so on and it's just i mean it's a pretty straightforward function i point out flaws in llms i get clicks i get money <laughs> it's so i'm not sure what you know there there are so many people who have a vested interest in 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 making in being like oh doom 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 mm -hmm. that i think it needs to be adjusted in the in, at the receiving end Garobi Optimization recently joined us to discuss how you can drive decision-making, giving you the confidence to harness provably optimal decisions. Trusted by 80% of the world's leading enterprises, Garobi's cutting-edge optimization solver, lightweight APIs, and flexible deployment simplify the data-to-decision journey. Garobi offers a wealth of resources for data scientists. Webinars like a recent one on using Garobi in Databricks, they provide hands-on training, notebook examples, and an extensive online course. Visit garobi.com slash SDS for these resources and exclusive access to a competition illustrating optimization's value with prizes for top performers. That's G-U-R-O-B-I dot com slash SDS. Yeah, I get you. I, it makes total sense to me. Um, to what extent, um, like, what do you think about the, the meta open source efforts? I think it's, for me personally, it's been a really cool thing to see, and it's made a huge difference in my personal perception of Meta. Because prior to all these open source releases this year, things like Llama 2, and apparently they're working on something much, much bigger. Um, so we also, we recently had Thomas Sielom. I don't know if you know him. He's in Paris. Um, and he works at Meta, uh, and he was the final author on the Llama 2 paper. Um, mm -hmm. So he's like the lab head kind of equivalent. Yeah. In academia and yeah it's it, he was clear that what they're working on next it, like the llama 3 will be much much bigger uh much closer to a gpt4 kind of size and uh capability and so i've i've been i've been turned around i've done a 180 on my feelings of meta based on these open source efforts like i was a year ago two years ago with their stock price going down, I was like, yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, like, I don't know, like of all the big tech companies, I was just, I don't know, I felt like they were the, I don't know, the, the, the one that was kind of doing the least positive in the world. And I wasn't cheering them on. But these open source initiatives have been huge. And um, I mean, it isn't 
it isn't open source like your open assistant. <laughs> their open source is like in quotes <laughs> because uh, they're just giving you the model weights. Um, yeah, but, although I mean, the, yeah. the open assistant models are also uh, some some are based on Llama, so we have to just replicate that license. But yeah, the the data is is fully. I believe it's like Creative Commons, some some appropriate. But yeah, it's nice. a it's a strange world where like Facebook essentially is becoming sort of the most open company, and open AI is becoming the most closed. <laughs> it's a, but it's like it's a bit like soccer teams, you know, right? Because the players they swap out every two or three years, so the 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 team is entirely different. It just carries the same name and. For some reason, people are like, yeah, Arsenal or something. You know? like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, what, what? Yeah, it's so weird. But and with the companies, I mean, I'm I'm sure that the researchers at Meta and, and Jan Lacan among them and others have been pushing hard for this um, approach of open sourcing this. And it's a strategy, right? Because now they can build a platform where people can sort of contribute their apps with, um, I believe that's maybe what they want to do with metaverse and things around AR and so on, where they want to say, hey, how about we just give these tools to people so they can build cool apps so that, you know, then they can put these onto our platform. Mm -hmm. That was always the point in, you know, making TensorFlow, making PyTorch open source, making all of these things open sources will give these tools so people build applications that we can then serve on our platforms and things like this. And it's really cool. Yeah. It's absolutely, absolutely nice to see that there's so much open stuff coming out of Meta. Yeah. It's a great example of the way that doing these kinds of open source things can really lock you into a product is the CUDA library. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> like it's, it's wild, the monopoly that NVIDIA has on GPUs and a big part of it is that every, we expect things to run on CUDA um, and so it makes it hard to switch that hardware. Yeah. Um, uh, thankfully, it seems like PyTorch and TensorFlow, these are um, more agnostic to the specific application area, but I absolutely agree with you that the, the kinds of things I'm sure Meta is interested in from a proprietary perspective to be able to be getting the same kind of whatever 30% revenue of every app, kind of like Apple has with their app store. I mean, this is a really lucrative <laughs> thing to be forcing people to, you have an iPhone, you've got one app store, all the apps have to go through us and we get a pretty sizable chunk. Yeah. Of, yeah, of everything. Yeah, I'm sure they're, they're salivating on that idea for the post iPhone world, which, yeah, I mean, seems reasonable to think that uh, a device, like a wearable device, an AR device, VR device, especially with the ability that these systems have, these LLM systems have for interacting with us verbally in natural language, it seems like that's a, a reasonable direction for next. Yeah, and it's also a, I mean, it's a just, it's just also a strategy that's kind of undermining the competitors, right? So OpenAI, Google, all of these places, they're throwing enormous amounts of money into developing these things. And MetaToken is just like, Here's open source, which just takes away so much of the market of these bigger language models because people, or at least it drives their pricing down, right? Because otherwise people will be like, well, for my application, actually, Llama 2 is completely fine. So I'll just use that, right? 
it just as a sort of a a tactic it's it's already working out i think yeah absolutely we use llama 2 in our machine learning company and it has been great we love it and uh it's also it's great how they have uh at least at this time released three different model sizes so if you want a 7 billion 13 billion parameter model those you can fit on a single gpu uh, and then they've got the 70 billion uh, parameter model, which we've never needed. We've never even tried. We've never even downloaded those model weights because uh, for the tasks that we need, like usually the 7 billion is fine. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, so speaking of size and scale, in the Open Assistant Conversations paper, you wrote about how um, these LLM advances that we've had in recent years follow a really straightforward formula, which is just scaling up. <laughs> so having more... Uh, transformers in the architecture and uh, and then needing a larger training corpus to correspond with that. So kind of following the chinchilla scaling law kind of idea. Um, so yeah, do you have any ideas on what we'll do other than scaling? Like, like what are alternative formulas for having better LLMs? I have no idea, honestly. I mean, <laughs> okay. it's surely someone can come up with a, a a different architecture or so, although I don't think that's going to make a giant difference. So I, I think a couple of works have shown that it it doesn't really matter what architecture, like MLP mixer and things like this. So it seems like as long as you have something that you can actually scale without hitting gradient saturations or things like this, like just something with lots of parameters that you can train uh, with a lot of data efficiently, then that will get you to a low perplexity on language modeling. So I'm, I don't have too much, let's say, hope there. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll make some advances in long context and things like this. I think we will continue scaling until it is no longer physically possible and then some more before we invent other things. It's like CPUs, right? People, people will go, oh no, 13 nanometers is really the end. And now we're at what, like three? Three, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it, and plus once we hit that limit, then we go to, ooh, can we do multi-core? Can we do blah, blah? Can we add caches and more cache and so on? So with the, with the, in general, the big models, I think it's going to scale for a while. And I hope what's going to happen is that we build kind of additional modules, especially around memory, uh, around things like lifelong learning um, and things like this. Like, But these are going to be additional systems that are on top of these models, mm -hmm. working with them rather than like fundamental changes to them. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, by lifelong memory, you mean something like an episodic memory, where it's like like maybe like writing to disk as opposed to trying to store it in weights or in context. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's like you you note taking, right? You learning something, you take notes. So that's one part is that that memory sort of that you store explicit things in, and the other mm -hmm. thing is the lifelong learning where you can you continue improving even as you do inference. Like right now we have training mode, then we have inference mode, 
And if we want something more, we go back to training mode. But a human just goes through life continuously, essentially doing inference and training at the same time. And I think we're yet away for these models to do that because we have catastrophic forgetting and blah, blah. Like It's just not a technical either engineering or from the machine learning perspective, really feasible to do that now. But it's definitely where things should go because if you have a good assistant, what you want it to do is you want it to learn from you over time, right? To work better with you together over its whole life. Right? This is a little bit of a tangent, but I don't, I don't think I've talked about this film on air and I think it's just awesome. In 2021, there was a big budget um, film called After Yang that came out and it stars Colin Farrell. He's kind of the, the, the most noticeable um, actor in it in terms of fame. Um, and it is about, I'm, I'm not giving you a spoiler here because this happens in the opening scene. Uh, it's this family that has a, an AI robot, like a physical, like a humanoid robot mm -hmm. named Yang. And in the opening scene, um, the family's doing a dance competition, like live on TV. Like it's like this, it's this kind of, it's this cool idea of like, um, in the future having like families, uh, dancing together in front of their TV and it's like a competition and somehow like a, a machine vision algorithm or whatever can judge each of the families on how well they're doing mm. in the competition. And this, uh, <laughs> this, this Android, this robot Yang, um, it like, it has an error, a fatal error. Um, well, it's doing that dancing in the beginning, in the opening scene of this film. And so the film is called After Yang. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the film is Colin Farrell first trying to repair it and then uh, investigating its episodic memory that it had accumulated. And it's a beautiful, beautiful story. It's like, it's like I mean, it's very, I cry very easily in films. <laughs> but this one had me like, oh my God, because it, like it, it, it was a really cool thing about uh, you know, this, it turned out, uh, now I, I, I would kind of be spoiling, but basically it turns out that Yang has been around for a long time mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's developed a lot of um, highly emotional um, episodic memories from over these decades that it had been, uh, I guess, in operation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, that was a complete tangent. But uh, an interesting, a, a great film that I recommend to probably, probably I suspect that any listeners of the show, uh, given your interest in machine learning and AI, it is, you know, it's certainly not as famous as a movie like her, um, but I thought it was excellent and a really interesting um, perspective on, on, on where things could be going in the coming decades with uh, the kinds of advanced AI systems that we have. And very different from her in the sense that with her, it's a hundred percent software. Mm -hmm. And whereas with this one, there's a hardware component as well. Anyway. Cool. <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, so what do you think, uh, Yannick, in terms of making sure that these kinds of open distribution of AI models, like we have with meta, like you had with your open assistant, what do you think are the best things that we can be doing to encourage that ecosystem to continue to develop, I guess, contribute to open source ourselves? Yeah, although, I mean, it's become harder, right? Since mm. giant companies and entire nation states, you know, like right. Arab universities backed by 
their governments come into this. <laughs> so whether there's definitely a lot of hacking still to do. Um, and that's that's what I really love about the the open source community is if you see, I mean, for example, if you see things that were done with clip-guided diffusion, right? Just because OpenAI announced DALI and Clip together, but they only released some weights for the Clip model and no weights for the DALI model. And you see the inventiveness of the open source community, what they can do if you give them the tools. The whole, this whole clip guided diffusion, right, area was was completely based on the fact that OpenAI didn't release Dolly, and people were like, "Ah, we still want to do cool pictures." <laughs> um, so, yeah, I I think there's a lot of hacking and 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 things to do for the individual people, but they're more going to be in the domain of making use, making creative use of the stuff that is released. And I think, you know, I'm not going to say do that because people who want to do it, they're already doing it. They're naturally drawn to things like this. But just, I don't know, try to think outside the box and try to think of what what is a weird way I can use these model weights, let's say, that OpenAI would never do would never think of doing and i don't necessarily mean unethical or so but just you know <laughs> you know like clip guided diffusion to me it's it's one of these examples where that that's just a way of using it that that's not opening i would not do that right or you know very or very creative applications for example i've seen i've seen one where you give a a few words and it gives you like a color palette for it and that was really early on i think that was also clip guided diffusion if i'm i'm not entire oh no that was stable diffusion but i mean it was trained to produce like images but then people were like hacking it and, and building things on top with averaging to give you a color palette for and you put some mood words it's just so creative and no no big company, product company is going to think of those things. So I think, you know, think of what you could do special, like that, that is not super obvious with things like this. I think there lies the beauty of the open source community. Data science and machine learning jobs increasingly demand cloud skills, with over 30% of job postings listing cloud skills as a requirement today, and that percentage set to continue growing. Thankfully, Kirill and Atlan, who have taught machine learning to millions of students, have now launched CloudWolf to efficiently provide you with the essential cloud computing skills. With CloudWolf, commit just 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you can obtain your official AWS certification badge. Secure your career's future, Join now at cloudwolf.com slash SDS for a whopping 30% membership discount. Again, that's cloudwolf.com slash SDS to start your cloud journey today. Nice, yeah. That makes perfect sense. And that's a really nice way of phrasing it, to be doing weird things <laughs> that aren't illegal, <laughs> uh, that OpenAI wouldn't think of. Um, so switching gears a bit to what you're doing at your company. So 
you're the CTO of a legal tech startup called Deep Judge, which is based in Switzerland. And it's got tons of really high-powered PhDs in AI um, and NLP uh, working in the company. It seems like an awesome place to work. And you know, you are taking you you are taking these kinds of technologies, large language models, and applying it in industry specifically um, to legal document processing and searching. So um, your product called Knowledge Search um, is using, I assume, and you can <laughs> let us know without give, divulging proprietary secrets, uh, using uh, things like open source LLMs probably to be able to do search over legal documents in a way that nobody else can today or, or none of the leading systems uh, because and big law firms have millions of documents, but I suspect that the best that, I, I suspect that the incumbent approach is just a dumb keyword-based search. That's exactly right. So the, um, yeah, law firms, legal professionals, and so on, they've just organized around the fact that they can't really search well and, and really use their old knowledge in the documents well. And yeah, I think that's that's poised for a change. And we're doing that. We just enable better search working and then applications on top of that, obviously. So the issue is really scale. Uh, if you want to process yeah million it's it's really it's it goes into billions of documents because hundreds of millions up to billions of documents that reside in these in these companies and if you want to process those you really need to think of of scale and of of plumbing essentially so that you have very high throughput um there's a lot of concerns of data privacy data sovereignty um there's obviously attorney client privilege that needs to be um maintained and then there's just it's real data so you'll find the same document you know in three emails and in 10 different versions laying around somewhere and you have to handle all of this and then yeah it's there it's a nice mix of sort of machine learning challenges but also just of practical engineering challenges that happen when you go to the real world, which I really haven't seen in academia much before, because in academia, you always have your nice data set and it's nicely split, it's nicely cleaned, it's nicely labeled. And all you wanna do is kind of get the number up at the end. In industry, you don't even have a number. You don't, you don't even know what to evaluate. So yeah, that's, that, that's really different. And it's really cool to be doing that. Nice. How did this particular application area come about for you? It was more or less random. We were at the end of our PhDs and we did a project at university that was large, that was in the domain of legal tech. And we got into contact with some lawyers and we just realized that there's a lot of, lot of things to do and it would be a nice fit for the tech because legal documents are largely language-based. Other than, let's say, I mean, financial documents are largely based around tables with numbers in it and so on. That's not so good for language model or statistical language models. So legal documents is one of the domains where certainly uh, I, I see a fit really well. 
And yeah, so we embarked on this. That was even before for chat GPT and stuff. So, so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally get it. I'm on very much the same page as you because my company Nebula, what we do is a similar kind of semantic search, but over human profiles. So yep. it's like for ours, it's like talent acquisition or sales lead acquisition. So using publicly available uh, natural language on people that we can find, and then you can put in you know, skills that you're looking for, job title, uh, just you can use natural language um, to search over our database in seconds, do this kind of semantic search and pull back profiles. In your case, you're pulling back uh, documents. Um, Correct. So yeah, so you're, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> I get that there's opportunity here for sure. Um, there's something called collinear technology um, that, um, that has been talked about in the context of um, what you guys are doing. And so um, I actually hadn't heard of that before, but it seems to kind of blend the semantic search um, that, that we love as data scientists, that is NLU, natural language understanding. Uh, so using things like transformer architectures um, to create embeddings that we can search over. Um, so that's like the semantic search um, that we've been talking about so far uh, since we've been talking about Deep Judge, but this collinear technology seems to allow you to have semantic and keyword search together. Can you fill us in on that a bit more? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a term it's a term we came up with um to to have sort of a name for what we're doing. I guess sometimes it's called hybrid search or something like this, but what we mean by that is just that our index structures align the more frequency type information with the more neural type information because you want you want both, right? You you don't want just the keyword type search or the frequency-based search, and you also don't just want the semantic search because sometimes you just care about words and not just feelings. Um, and sure, you can say, well, we'll just get embeddings that are so good that they capture like every nuance of everything. It's still a bit out of scope, I believe. So for some applications, Pure vector-based search is really good, actually for many, um, especially if you, anything around product search or anything around you know, like Amazon product reviews and so on, all of these things, semantic search works wonderful. For our applications though, there are a few weaknesses and that's why we have to sort of blend the two things together. And that's where it gets into our more proprietary tech in how exactly we mix the two and we enable retrieval with with the combined with a combination not just mm -hmm. sort of um one or the other because what most semantic search do is they either retrieve vector based or they retrieve actually keyword based and then kind of re-rank with a re-ranker things like this um so collinear technology is a name we gave to the thing that we do because we didn't know what else to call it. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense to me for your use case in particular, where there would be situations like a specific client name or company name or event where a semantic search might be a little bit fuzzy on those things and find you know, somebody who is related to that specific person in some way, you know, that you know, this second person often shows up in the same documents as the first person. And so the kind of semantic search says, well, 
the second person is pretty much the same as the first. <laughs> um, but for a legal document, you're like, well, no, we actually like the first person is the person we need. The second person doesn't matter. Yeah, and especially if you if you don't train on the data that you search over, right, which is very often the case because you 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 train on a subset or you train on a different set and so on. You can't you can't possibly have seen all the data in training. So even now, if a name comes in, you don't even know that name appears with the other name. You just know it's a name. And if you do semantic search, you'll just get like a semantically similar thing, which is another name, which isn't very helpful. So that some yeah, some of these things are just weaknesses of doing embedding-based search, let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great example there. Um, so uh, you mentioned in a recent interview that deep judge users are quickly learning how to craft effective LLM prompts. Um, that's kind of that's an interesting thing that I don't talk about much on the show. We don't really talk very much about uh, prompt engineering, and we don't need to spend a huge amount of time on it. But how have you found your users? How easily have they sh shifted from, say, the keyword-based search that they're used to for legal document search into um, this LLM-based uh, approach that requires prompt engineering? Yeah. So, like, what are the prompt prompts like? How do you maybe nudge your users in the direction of making effective prompts? Or is it intuitive? Did they figure it out on their own? No, they actually come, they, they've been using chat GPT and things like this. So they actually, they come with that. They come when we say, hey, this is AI powered search, they come with the expectation that they can start a sentence by you are a professional lawyer, and I have a client. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I think the Legal profession is definitely a profession where these technologies can make a big impact. And people have been realizing this and have been using these technologies just as they came out, right? Hey, draft me a memo, draft me something. As long as they don't put confidential data into the chat GPT interface, they're actually totally fine using it and letting it help them draft things. And so... There, there has been absolutely no education needed on our part. <laughs> There's more like a bit of anti-education to not, not do that too much, right? Rather than, and it's the same with, with keyword search as such. I mean, Google has sort of taught people how to search, because if you, if you observe yourself typing things into Google, it's really weird. Like it's really weird what people type in there. They type like half a phrase and then half a different phrase, and then they they type like how to. And if you look at that piece of text, it's so dumb. But we know that's kind of Googleish, and we know that Google can give us good stuff. And then Google, in turn, will go, will observe what people do, and be like, "Can we serve these people better?" And we'll adjust there. So it's this it's this dynamic where just the tech teaches people, and the people teach the tech. Mathematics forms the core of data science and machine learning. And now with my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course, you can get a firm grasp of that math, particularly the essential linear algebra and calculus. You can get all the lectures for free on my YouTube channel, but if you don't mind paying a typically small amount for the Udemy version, you get everything from YouTube, plus fully worked solutions to exercises and an official course completion certificate. 
As countless guests on the show have emphasized, to be the best data scientist you can be, you've got to know the underlying math. So check out the links to my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course in the show notes or at johncrone.com slash udemy. That's johncrone.com slash u-d-e-m-y. Yeah, for sure. Um, we are, with our Nebula platform, we have recently made some advances. Um, it's like, like our most recent release at the time of recording allows our users to ask more like natural language questions like you're describing, mm -hmm. you know, like you're a great lawyer and uh, I need, you know, help me draft a document. Um, but up until very recently, we had a, our search kind of worked in a way where, okay, so let's say you're looking for a data scientist with experience with LLMs and PyTorch. Then a kind of a great way to query that in our system, and this is like, it's it's been this, um, this like, it's been a big lesson for me is that like, because just because it's easy for me to understand that, okay, then the right thing to do in the search box is type data scientist, LLM, PyTorch. Yeah. And enter. Like, and it's like, to me, that's like really obvious and you're going get to get really great results back. But our users come in and they say, find me a data scientist in New York. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we've had to we've had to adapt uh, because that is like disproportionately because of, as you're saying, people have the chat GPT experience. When you tell people that it's an AI based search, then they assume that they can direct it uh, in natural language. And so, yeah, this has been something, it's a lesson that I actually wish I'd learned earlier. <laughs> I wish that I'd been kind of figuring a way, a way to make this work um, as opposed to kind of like, like my solution previously was always like, well, we'll put in like a demo video. Yeah. And yeah, nobody, yeah. nobody watches it because <laughs> you're like, and I'm like, this is really easy. Like you just need to just like the Google example that you, that you gave there reminds me of this, which is that with Google search, people have had two decades to figure out that, okay, putting how to on the end works and, yeah. you know, blending two different phrases in this like semi natural language, uh, works really effectively. And so like my kind of, uh, I've been pushing too hard on the product team saying like people will get it. They just need a little bit of experience, which is true. It's like with the way that our platform worked for say the preceding year where I'm expecting like data scientist, LLM, PyTorch, enter, um, with that kind of, I'm like, people start to figure that out after like five searches or 10 searches kind of thing. Um, but of course, like in a demo or a sales call, you want the person to be able to type in whatever they want right away. Yes. their first time using the platform for free and get amazing results without having to think about it. So that's been a huge uh, learning for me. And it sounds like you've already figured that out at Deep Judge in terms of having it be a chat GPT like um, natural language experience. Well, we haven't figured it all out. And it's certainly the case that people still search in very different ways. We just expand what we can support of these, right? I think we have very much the same experience in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this is maybe a bit of a tricky question, but <laughs> I, predicting things about the future is always hard, but given how deep you are in the ground on where open source, uh, LLM technology is going, do you think that there might be big breakthroughs in the coming months or say kind of the next year that would significantly impact the way that you are able to, uh, help out your clients with LLMs? Um, yeah, as I, as I said, tricky question. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think I think the breakthroughs are already there. So it, there's always this lag until things really become products. 
And I think we're seeing the first things now with consumer products, right? So people taking GPT-4 API, building cool consumer products from it. But then, so there's already a lag because GPT-4 came out a while ago. And until these things really penetrate business-to-business software and get deployed there. So I, I think the breakthroughs that allow, you know, whether you consume an API or, or open source models or fine-tuned models or whatnot, I think the breakthroughs are already there. And there are so many products to be built just on the tech we have right now. I don't think it's super necessary that there are more breakthroughs uh, just because there's so much to do. That being said, I have no clue whether there's like a giant breakthrough. I mean, uh, certainly one can predict there's going to be probably one or two iterations of open source large language models that are significantly better than the last generation before. Mm -hmm. I don't, that doesn't change the fundamental dynamics, but it just expands the things you can do with them reliably. Yeah, I, th- I think you already touched on something that it, that we're something to me that's kind of obvious is something that's coming. You already mentioned in the show is larger context windows. So we have things like Anthropics Claude as a one hundred thousand uh, token uh, context window, and um, I can't remember the exact number for Llama two. Is it eight thousand tokens? Probably. I think it's that. Yeah. So that's a pretty big gap. <laughs> um, but it's also it's unclear. How well? I mean, I haven't tested in the sense of that hundred thousand token context window. Like, I haven't tested that in any way. Like, it's it's easy to say that you have that. It's another thing for it to actually work well. Yeah, I mean, the, it's 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 got it's probably from what I've seen. I think it it does work well when it's like you need to like there is as a specific part of the 100,000 token context that is now relevant and that you need to use. And I think it's really good at figuring out what that is. But doing integrative information processing across the whole context, I think there it's just a matter of, okay, the more you more stuff you put in there, the more noisy it gets. So I, yeah. I, I'm like you, I didn't thoroughly test that. Um, yeah, but it's questionable. Longer context yeah. is for sure good, but it's questionable whether there isn't something smarter one can do on top of the mm-hmm. LLM rather than inside. Yeah, yeah. And I think this kind of episodic memory thing that we've talked about could be better, where it's like, yeah, note-taking and just caching things that seem like really important details, um, which I think is is more similar to the way that, you know, if if we're reading a book or you're studying a textbook, you're not trying to have context over everything. You highlight some of the few things that are, you know, the really key aspects of what you're reading in the textbook, um, or you write them separately in a notebook. Uh, and this is like an effective way for most human beings <laughs> to be able to study for something. It isn't an effective approach to try to be like, I'm going to memorize everything in the textbook. Yeah, you yeah. have to be like a savant. <laughs> um. So yeah, so speaking of uh, volumes getting uh, very large, like things like big context windows and research is moving really quickly, um, machine learning research has been growing really rapidly. So since 2015, it's been growing at a tack of about 20% per year in terms of 
volume of papers published in machine learning research. Um, and so from the time that you uploaded your first YouTube video in 2017 to today, roughly the volume of ML papers being published has tripled. Yeah. So um, you run, as far as I can tell, the biggest YouTube channel on ML research. Um, how do you keep up personally with that huge volume? Yeah, it's, it's, it's gotten harder. So there was a time at the beginning of my PhD 2016 or so where I, not even for YouTube before I started YouTube, just I, I at least looked at every single paper on archive. So in the morning, I, just, I had a script that downloaded all the like ML, so stat ML and all the CS or the ones I was interested in, but there were a lot like the, the lists on archive, the new publications. And then I just flicked through them because uh, I had like an hour train ride. So I just flicked through them for 45 minutes and occasionally read one that I found interesting. So that was possible at the time. I don't think that's even possible anymore to, to do that, or you really have to be dedicated. And luckily there are people who are dedicated. Um, so I think the way most people keep up nowadays is to do a bit of your own scouring, right, on new archive releases, um, plus to have a network of social media slash blogs slash lists slash uh, automated things that just kind of deliver deliver a stream where you can sort of guesstimate. But there's absolutely research nowadays that most people miss just because it didn't manage to grab the attention of enough people that would be very valuable but there's just no one cares about because no one else cared about it <laughs> and i also i mean i have the additional luck that people also um post on our discord people people post interesting papers and and sort of talk about them and there are almost daily paper discussions going on and things like this so I have a, by now, a really good support network, I would say, helping me in all of this, making sense of the space. Um, yeah, that's super helpful. Nice, yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Do you have any particular resources, uh, publicly available resources that you recommend, like these kinds of um, blogs or communities that any of our listeners could subscribe to or be a part of? Yeah, it's tricky. I, I would say, I would say the best thing to do is find your own personalized mix, because also what, you know, if we all start doing and following the same thing, um, it becomes, we just increase our blind spots. So I think if, if everyone does their own personalized mix of sources, the likelihood that all research somewhere is covered and can be amplified mm -hmm. is better. Now, obviously everyone should subscribe to the two of us. Uh, that's out <laughs> of question. But other than that, do your own personalized mix. Nice. Um, yeah, great answer. Thank you for the plug. <laughs> um, we didn't pay him to say that. Um, Yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, actually, that's not a terrible idea. We actually, we recently did, uh, we started doing, um, there's a, a podcast that I love and I've, I've co-hosted twice now, uh, at least at the time of recording. By the time this episode is published, it's potentially, potentially I'll have co-hosted more of the show. It's a show called Last Week in AI, and it's a, it's a podcast. It's an audio-only podcast um, where they wrap up the week's uh, AI news, 
And so this is a different kind of podcast to this show where, you know, I have a guest and we go deep into topics like with you with Open Assistant. Um, and so they're not, they're not a competitor to ours, um, but I absolutely love the show. It's the only podcast that I listen to. I make sure I never miss a second of it because it allows me to uh, kind of like you're saying, like having a survey of systems, it, uh, the episodes are often two hours long and it isn't, it isn't a deep technical dive. It isn't intended for data scientists or machine learning engineers, um, like your content is, or my content is it's, you know, you could be a manager and follow along with all the AI stories over the last week, but it's been great for me because at least then I've kind of like you skimming through all the archive papers in 2016 on your commute. It allowed me, it allows me every week to at least have heard every one of the big stories. Yeah. Um, because there's this kind of weird, for many years, <laughs> there was this weird disconnect where, yes, you know, like I understand, uh, you know, I can write out for you how gradient descent works in, in calculus formulas, um, or, you know, I can code up a neural network in PyTorch. And so, you know, this makes me a data scientist, but there was this weird expectation on me or I used to think it was a weird expectation on me that somebody who isn't technical, but who follows AI blogs or something, you know, they'd say like, Oh, did you see this paper? Or like, um, you know, and, and I was, I had this kind of like default reaction of, well, I can't keep up on everything. Yeah. Um, and, but now with like the last week in AI podcast, I kind of can, but anyway, all of that is to say that we actually, we started recently um, actually paying them to just, mention the super data science podcast on air mm -hmm. um and yeah maybe the yannick kilshire youtube channel is a great venue for us to be paying you to mention us i, I uh, have so. i have no like th my main <laughs> blocker for sponsorships is just my capacity to make the sponsor slots uh, or the 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 shout outs because i i kind of want to do a good job right because they mm -hmm. they pay me and mm -hmm. But then I, I just don't have the time. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a peculiar situation. Yeah, there's, um, there's a channel that I love, a YouTube channel. It's like History Oversimplified or something like this. It's definitely Oversimplified is in the title. Yeah. And they mostly cover history. You know that channel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love it. It's so funny. But uh, I don't actually know who the guy is that makes that channel, but it's always the same guy. It's always the same voice. And I'm pretty sure he does the animations too because they're terrible. <laughs> and that's kind of the point. Um, but it's a really fun, like if you kind of want to have an overview of like, particularly like historical wars, you know, and this stretches back many millennia, very cool stuff in there. Um, but the point of all this is to say that he does a great job and a very funny job of integrating his sponsor message into that specific YouTube video. So, yeah. um, you know, he'll be like, maybe we could have stopped Hitler if we had NordVPN. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that wasn't a great example because it was like, they do, it's better than even yeah. that. Uh, but uh, just to kind of give you the sense of how like he goes seamlessly from like whatever that specific video is about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, into, uh, into his sponsored message. So yeah, I hear what you're saying there on trying to make it um, a good experience for everyone, your sponsor as well as your listener. Um, nice. So um yeah. Have you ever considered like fine tuning an LLM to be able to curate um, everything that's on archive or to kind of help you with <laughs> your YouTube topic selection? It could be, it could be an idea. Uh, yeah, for, for sure. For sure. 
Like that would be fun. I don't know. It would be interesting to see what comes out. I have not. Yeah. It would be like, it, it would be, uh, yeah, there'd be some engineering challenges. If you cracked it though, I bet a lot of people would be interested in it, right? Like, so if you had somehow had like a, on a daily basis or a weekly basis, you were taking all archive papers and actually, I guess, doing something similar to Deep Judge where you're having all of these documents um, stored in model weights or, or have embeddings created for all of the archive papers. And then that would allow people to ask questions, but that's actually different. That is completely but different. That's it wasn't different... like archive sanity, just an attempt at, mm. I think that was the, the main attempt at that. So that could yeah. be, that could be pimped a little bit with, mm -hmm. with newer mm -hmm. language models. Yeah. Yeah. That's Andre Carpathy's archive sanity preserver, right? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And it's interesting that he would have made that around 2016. <laughs> so I wonder, I don't know to what extent he's updated it since to try to uh, be able to handle the volume we have today. I don't know. But yeah, you could, as you said, uh, pimp it out with a, a large language model potentially. Um, nice. So then when you're deciding on what to cover in a YouTube video, how do you, so it's kind of like this, so you're basically like crowdsourcing, like you have um, your, your set of uh, blogs, say newsletters that you yeah, follow just whatever like whatever yeah. feels interesting to me I, I i don't assume any authority on saying what isn't isn't important and so on other than it's it's interesting to me nice and then this kind of this way that you've ended up in this situation where you have over two hundred thousand subscribers on youtube was there any kind of intention or or goal when you got started with this in 2017 or was it just kind of like something that you enjoyed doing and whatever happens, happens. Yeah, I mean, I had no expectations or anything like this. Um, I had no no knowledge of that anyone would want to listen to or anyone <laughs> that doesn't need to would want to listen to 45-minute uh, ramblings about papers or anything like this. So it's been very special, but yeah, I, had, I have no aspirations of growth or anything like ooh, it'd be cool to reach whatever a, a million subscribers or so just because it's a big number but i never actively do anything like this i i don't use like i do some youtuber stuff like you know i try to get a, a thumbnail that sort of communicates well and is inviting but <laughs> yeah, you would try to deliberately sabotage yourself with that's, the worst yeah, yeah. thumbnails and titles. Yeah. So, but, but I don't know. I, I don't really, don't really go into my analytics and be like, oh, this X many subscribers and so on. Like I try to improve, but not for the sake of, of pushing the numbers. Mm -hmm. So you're, yeah, you're not like deliberately like chasing the algorithm or hopping onto trends for the purpose of like, building like clickbaity videos that lots of people click on. It's more about having great quality content in the video and kind of catering to the person who's going to listen to a lot of that video and just enjoys getting deep into the content. And so they, they, however they happen to chance upon you in the first instance, they're going to stay because yeah, they love this kind of deep, um, yeah, deep analysis of the papers. I hope so. I don't have time to, to do like big retention tactics or anything <laughs> I don't don't just don't have the capacity for that so yeah nice yeah well uh I think we're aligned just kind of similar to the way that our startups are aligned 
uh, I think our philosophy on content creation is the same. This is definitely the same. Like I'm, yeah, I try to have a YouTube thumbnail that's relevant and I try to have a clear title uh, that is basically just like the subject. I'm like, if, you know, if this was a chapter of a textbook, uh, what would I name the chapter title? Um, and yeah, hopefully it, <laughs> yeah, maybe we can get to 200,000 subscribers on YouTube someday too. We'll see what happens. Uh, but yeah, I'm not, yeah, my personal value <laughs> isn't tied uh, mm -hmm. to my number of subscribers. It's yeah. I hope people are, yeah. Hope just, just trying to create the best possible, uh, content every time and hope that whoever's listening to it out there is loving it. So we'll see how that continues to go. Um, so a common topic on your channel that comes up um, is adversarial examples. So I think there's over a hundred videos <laughs> on oh, adversarial really? okay. examples. Uh, that's what our, our researcher, Serge Massis, uh, dug okay. up, uh, that, that figure. Um, so you've also written papers on adversarial examples and adversarial training, um, including at some of the biggest venues like NeurIPS. Um, and so for our listeners who are unfamiliar with this topic, um, what does, yeah, what, what are adversarial examples? What is adversarial training? Yeah, adversarial examples are, well, let's see. It's a bit of a, it's still a bit of an unsolved question what exactly they are. So the phenomenon is, the, is that I can take a neural network that's been trained on something, for example, classifying images, and I can make a tiny perturbation to an image that is invisible, provably invisible, or not provably invisible, but like lower than 8-bit precision, for example, right? So, so a pixel can't change more than a single color value, right? which is not perceptible to humans. So you, I, take, I make these tiny imperceptible changes to the pixels of the image. And the human would still see exactly the same image, but the neural network thinks it's something completely different. And what that does is, obviously these perturbations aren't random. These perturbations are very targeted such that, uh, such that I kind of, it kind of abuses the dynamics of the neural network to just push its decision as far away as possible from what it originally predicted. It, it's kind of a, a fluke, I would say. And it's kind of, it's certainly an out of distribution example, right? By doing these exact perturbations, you're going into a direction in the input space that was never covered with the training data. Um, and because you're going in exactly the right direction, in exactly the direction of maximal discrepancy, you don't need to go very far to make a big change. That's actually how you, by definite, by construction, that's how you build these examples. So you make this super targeted change and what you're targeting is the decision of the model. And that means you end up with the change that is the least amount of change for the biggest amount of change in decision. And that's how you craft these things. And people have actually done very cool stuff. They've done this in real life. Um, so they have taken kind of street sign classifiers and they just slapped like at the correct place. They slapped like a, a sticker on the stop sign so that then the neural network is like, 
that's not a stop sign, that's a street lamp. And <laughs> even though it's clearly a stop sign, right? But just because you, and the idea here is you are able to look inside the neural network at all the weights, at the gradients and so on. And that's how you can craft these attacks. It is a bit, so it happens to humans, for example, optical illusions are very much adversarial examples. They are, they don't, optical illusions, co coincidentally, they wouldn't look really special or different to a machine, but to a human because it abuses the particularities of your visual system. It just looks like something odd, you know. Um, or the fact that people see faces everywhere. That's an adversarial, that you can think of as an adversarial example. And yeah, we've that that's that. And, and there's a lot of cool work around it, including the whole series of work on, on GANs, on generative adversarial networks, is essentially just an extension of this idea of adversarial examples. So there's a lot of stuff to be done. And we've written some papers on it about how, what, one explanation of why these things happen and how you can potentially defend against them approaches and so on so yeah yeah that that's cool i had never thought of this analogy to human vision with the optical illusions but this makes perfect sense so in the same way that yeah our particular system you know our rods and cones and the way that they combine together in our neural cortex uh you know there's this particular way that evolved that is going to be helpful like if we're a monkey if, and we are, <laughs> if we're a monkey in the trees, like looking for fruit amongst leaves, you know, this leads to particular kinds of, um, you know, our system works in a particular way that then when somebody on a piece of paper draws lines in a specific way, that is unlike anything you would ever encounter in the wild, um, you can end up messing with uh, the way that our, our visual systems work. So this is a really great analogy where it's like, or you're describing with the deep neural network, if we like look on a, an individual neural basis uh, on the so artificial neurons, we can figure out, okay, putting the sticker on the stop sign is going to make it uh, think that it's uh, a street light instead of a stop sign. Uh, similarly, it's our understanding of the way that human uh, perception works that allows these optical illusions to work. So that's a great analogy. And I, I've never come across that before. It makes a lot of sense. Um, on your channel, you reviewed a paper um, by uh, Professor Alexander Madri's group at MIT. Uh, this uh, paper was called Adversarial Examples Are Not Bugs, They Are Features. And this was really interesting to us as we were doing research for your episode. Um, is it, how is it that this could be a feature, not a bug? It seems like such a problem. Um, I mean, this, this is one of the, certainly one of the landmark papers in the field that goes a long way into explaining I mean, it it's a you can look at these things as phenomenon from different angles, and one of the angles is very well explained by this paper, which is essentially where do the adversarial examples even come from? Sort of, you know, no, what what causes them? And what this group has found is that these th things are they are given by the data. So adversarial examples or adversarial attacks are made possible by essentially using real patterns in the data set that are just too imperceptible for humans 
to see. So for example, if you're classifying animals, right? You have the shape of the animal and so on, that where it is, you know, in the landscape and things like that, you know, big features like wow, and features we humans usually go by. And then you have other features like the structure of their skin, of their fur, and so on. And these are predictive too. So now any machine learning model, it can essentially, it's not bound by human limitations. So as far as it can pick up on these tiny features, it may use them or it may use the big features, let's say the shape features. And just by the nature of, like a, a good model is obviously going to use both, but the difference is any model, whether good or they it will include these imp more imperceptible features and the all the paper says is that when we craft adversarial attacks we essentially operate in that space of imperceptible features which is is i'm going to take a picture of an airplane i'm going to slap the fur of a fox on it but only not the fur like boom but just like the very high frequency features of the fur that the neural network would pick mm -hmm. up on. So mm -hmm. to a human, it, it because these are so high frequency, it doesn't look like too much of a difference yet to the neural networks like, wait a minute, I know that structure of mm -hmm. pixel differences, that's a mm -hmm. fox, right? Mm -hmm. And the paper essentially says, this is not a, a fluke, you know, this is not an, a, a bug in the sense of, oh, it's something that is a result of how we train things and so on. No, these are actually predictive, true predictive features that are absolutely valid for the neural network to learn from the data. It's just that they're not the features we would like it to learn, but they're valid. I think that was the, the core point of the paper, and they had a series of, of quite uh, smart experiments to demonstrate that that is actually what's going on. Nice. That's very cool. I I hadn't thought of any of those kinds of ideas before. And crystal clear, amazing explanation of this, yeah, like the high frequency Fox features on top of an airplane. It's so easy to understand that way. And it's also so easy to see how these are features. Um, so despite all of that, despite them being features, are there ways that we can mitigate adversarial examples um, without affecting model accuracy? Yeah, well, no. I mean, that, that, the short answer is no, because right. I mean, we have to define what we mean by model accuracy. Obviously, obviously, because adversarial features exist, these models don't generalize in a sense, because if they, by generalization, one can define generalization as working everywhere a human visual system would work. Right? That's if I think of a vision classifier and I ask myself, what does it truly mean for the thing to generalize? My response would be, well, at any particular thing I look at, I want it to give the same response as if I were to give that response. So clearly by the definition of that, they don't generalize. Right? So if we say accuracy is in terms of generalization capability, then the way to go about it is to just align them more with the human visual system, right? So as long as these things have access to features, to perceptions that the humans don't have access to or are biased to downgrade or so on, they're going to learn them. And they're going to learn, you know, and then you can, as 
if there is a misalignment, you can always abuse that misalignment to craft these adversarial examples. So the more you align even the perception, like the input <laughs> domain of these things, the less adversarial examples you're going to have. On top of that, there are some techniques that you can do to sort of mitigate the immediate phenomena. And um, these are like, it's a bit like cat and mouse. So people come up with a new way of defending against adversarial examples in classifiers. Mm -hmm. And then other people come up with a way of attacking those and so on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, all of this makes perfect sense. This isn't, uh, so this is, <laughs> this isn't exactly an adversarial question. Now, I mean, we were just talking about adversarial examples, but something that seems kind of related in the sense that, uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, flaws or, uh, abuses that possible with these, uh, modern AI systems, um, particularly, you know, with deep neural networks, large language models, something that has been getting more and more prominent in recent years, this is an obvious thing for probably all of our listeners, is that deep fakes are getting better and better quality. And so if people are watching the YouTube version of this episode, uh, they'll notice that you've been wearing sunglasses this whole time and that actually you're always wearing sunglasses on YouTube. And uh, yeah, so this is related to, you know, people not being able to deep fake you, right? It was originally uh, like, but now, now like one picture is enough to deep fake someone. Mm. So it's become more of a branding thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, there's really not, not too much more of a reason for it other, other nice. than, than people kind of know the glasses by now. So yeah. 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 Well, yeah, it works for sure. I was blown away when, um, uh, Natalie on our team who does, um, like she helps me find great photos for social media of people. I was kind of blown away when she found one of you <laughs> without glasses. I was like, oh, yeah, there we go. Um, and yeah, so that's what we, we actually use. We're going to get to, um, audience questions in a bit, but I used that photo, um, to post that you'd be coming up on the show and we had, uh, quite a few audience questions for you. Um, but before we get to those audience questions, um, I have a few questions for you about where you see this space going, where you see the future of AI going. So obviously we've talked about some of this kind of stuff in the episode already, like um, we've talked about context windows, um, we've talked about episodic memory, um, but um, yeah, what else, you know, you've, you're on top of the latest machine learning research, other than the topics we've already talked about, what do you see? And it doesn't necessarily, because also those advances that we talked about were LLM specific. So maybe beyond LLMs or, or with AI in general, um, what do you think is likely or promising over the next few years or few decades? Um, you know, what, is, what does the future look like to you in this increasingly AI-driven world? Um, yeah, that's... <laughs> who, who knows, right? Who knows? I, I, have, no, I have no idea. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely no idea. Yeah, I mean, the, the question is, where do you get if you gain more and more the ability to statistically model really complicated distributions, for example, like language, right? Where, where, do, you, where do you go or where, do you, where can you get to? Some people say you can get all the way to, to AGI with that, right? By just being able, obviously, if you had a perfect predictor for what's the next token in every given situation, You'd be, 
you'd be pretty close to human intelligence, even beyond maybe for some tasks, right? So I have no idea. And even if we say, well, beyond LLMs or so, I'm, I'm, I think the hardware domain needs to catch up, uh, especially the domains of, of robotics and so on. And anywhere where the software components interact with the real world, like it, LLMs can now write novels with actually intricate plot points and so on. But if if you try to make a gripper grip something, it's it's still a super huge challenge, and it's going like, uh, and then aim, and then very slowly, right? So I I'm I have no idea whether it's possible or going to happen, but I. I'm hopeful that in the in the future that domain will significantly improve and I definitely see a lot of contributions a lot of breakthroughs to be made there. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing isn't it that we I think a decade ago the assumption was that it was blue collar tasks that were more automatable. And it was because, you know, we made some strides, you know, you can have the robot arm in the factory, like you're describing the gripper doing tasks, whereas 10 years ago, it was inconceivable that you could have a machine do a good job of helping you write an essay or just write the essay or write the novel. And so I think it's been, I think it's surprised a lot of people that in the last year, we've been, the scaling has been extremely effective at automating white collar work. And um, yeah, this was an interesting shift, but it does mean that there is still now lots more potential in automating blue collar work. And it isn't as obvious how we can be making the strides because um, with these white collar tasks, like creating a social media post or drafting an email, those are, it's, you know, we talked about how scaling early in the, in the episode has been working well so far, and it probably will, just like your example on the CPUs going from 13 nanometers to 3 nanometers. Like, we still have a ways to go with scaling for several more years that is going to create, I anticipate, <laughs> uh, with GPT-5, GPT-6 kind of things, they're, they're still going to be making big strides, and we're going to be very surprised at the emergent capabilities that come out of that. Um, whereas with robotics... You, you just, I mean, it's physical, so it's a lot harder to scale. I mean, you, you can, so yeah, there's just this kind of this real world constraint. It's way more expensive uh, when you're dealing with some robot that has to be moving like cars around and all of the like energy and gas. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, for that. sure, for sure. That's why we put more work into software, right? Because it's, it's just easier and the fruits of the labor, let's say, come faster and cheaper. But yeah, I, I've no, I, no idea. Yeah, it's interesting. The first jobs that go away are like Instagram models. You know, like the actual who thought who thought the first jobs to be replaced by AI is like, you know, girls taking pictures and, and people people sending them money for it. Yeah. Like yeah. it's yeah, it's it's crazy, crazy world. Yeah, it's wild. And so as you say, who knows is probably the best answer <laughs> to my uh to my thoughts about where or to my question about where you're going. Um, and so before I just one last thing, before I get into the audience questions, which is a question that I used to actually ask on the show all the time, but I haven't been as much lately. And I think that's partly because we've, um, Serge Massis, our researcher does such amazing deep research that I have all these, 
incredible. I mean, we like the the topic areas and questions that he had prepared for it were the, it was like many times <laughs> every week. There's many times more questions and suggested topics than than we have time to cover. And then of course we end up getting organically into more topics as well, just through conversation mm-hmm. um, and through <laughs> me me having ideas on the fly. Um, but so a question that I used to ask frequently of guests, but I don't as much anymore, but I think it would be interesting in your case is I'm sure there are people listening who, when you were talking about Deep Judge, uh, your company and the, the work that you're making, applying LLMs to the legal space, I'm sure there were people out there that were thinking, wow, that sounds really cool. Um, and it would be awesome to be working with Yannick Kilcher and the amazing people that they have over there. So are you doing hiring a Deep Judge and whether you are or not, um, what are the things that you look for in in the kinds of roles that our listeners would would uh, be interested in? Uh, we are always hiring, of course, and the roles that we look for are are quite diverse. Um, but mainly, we're looking for general, generally skilled engineers uh, that have more or less experience with machine learning. Like, but for us, people have to be multi multi-talented let's say um because in a startup you have to do many things and it's not always a new model that has to be trained that happens often but sometimes it's something else sometimes it's plumbing sometimes it's it's this and that so i think what we're mainly looking for are generalists who have a broad knowledge of technology obviously geared towards machine learning but also general technology and who are happy with a a diverse set of tasks rather than being super duper specialized on a particular thing nice makes perfect sense yeah for an early stage startup and yeah like a lot of the things we talked about in this episode i couldn't agree more (laughs) with what i'm looking for um nice all right so let's dig into some audience questions here all right so our first question here comes from mike nash and Mike is in the UK, I believe. Um, yes, he's in England. And um, he has a question for you. Actually, I, I picked this as the first one because we just were talking about Deep Judge and what you look for in people you hire. And so Mike was interested in what the most complex challenges you've had with your startup, or key lessons you've learned in getting Deep Judge off the ground, getting an AI startup off the ground. I don't think it's any or too different than other uh other startups honestly like just re- referring to ai startups um probably there's a bit more education involved with users potential users and so on of what really ai is and what in your particular product it can do and it cannot do because especially in the area of chat gpt they'll just expect sort of a magic thing that can do everything and anything which is i mean you can get in some part there with the newer tech, but still, I think the only difference to a like a, a non-AI startup, whatever that is today, is, is that there's probably a bit more education involved on your end towards customers or users. Biggest cha- there's not a biggest challenge. Like a startup is just a string of, of problems. Um, so everything's always burning and... Yeah, that's that's the life. Um, <laughs> it, it'd be nice if there was just the one problem or the one big problem mm-hmm. that you have to overcome. But it's more like that that that's that's every day. So 
yeah, you have to be mainly a problem solver if you're interested in in uh, startups, especially in founding. So, yep, great answer. Um, so another one here comes from Dr. Mark Moyu. He's a senior data scientist at NVIDIA, um, and he had a few questions. <laughs> um, but uh, I think one of the ones that I liked the most was, um, how do you balance leveraging frameworks out of the box? versus implementing from scratch to solidify learning. So I think the idea here, it's kind of related to, I guess, just kind of learning ML techniques, but maybe particularly in the context of your YouTube videos, there's there's these trade-offs between like, you know, implementing things from scratch and really understanding it well versus just using the framework and having it work kind of magically. Yeah, I guess it depends on your goals. So during, during the I think I had to trade off much more during the PhD because now it's kind of clear in the startup, it's just whatever is best for the use case. So it's take a framework, take a library. And when you reach the point where those things break or aren't enough anymore or don't scale well enough or anything like this, then that's the point where you do your own. On I would say on the YouTube side, it's it's the opposite. It's like obviously i want to produce educational content so it, it would be kind of dumb for me to just be like how does a language how does how how to i've not done too many coding videos but it would be like weird to be like let's code transformers and i just do like hugging face dot <laughs> you know the, the, dot per, you know, inference and and be like okay um in the in academia it was probably the most balanced where Obviously, you need to get to a paper quickly, which means that you need to somehow produce results that leads you into the direction of really just using other people's code without much consideration. But also, obviously, you deeply need to understand something. So I used to implement quite a bit of stuff myself in order to just learn the, the, all the things that are in there. So, I mean, it's hard to say. It's mostly what do you want to achieve? If you want to achieve learning, then sure, implement yourself. But if you just want results, then I, I, I'm not in your way to just take what works and run it. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, we've got one here from Indu um, Sambendam. Uh, hopefully, I'm not butchering that last name too much. Um, she's based in Toronto. Um, and so she's interested in how you can make your models like robust to unexpected consequences um so yeah i don't know if this is something that you deal with i don't know if she's asking this question specifically based on content you published before or whether this is just kind of a general question but when you are say building machine learning models for deep judge for production um how do you anticipate and mitigate against kind of long tail events yeah you really can't um so again i th i think the a big, you, I mean, you can you can build some, let's say, support systems to detect when it happens and and really it in mostly. I guess these systems are usually called guardrails or things like this. You can also fiddle with the fine tuning a little bit if you, but if you if you want to fine tune these things away, you really need to be able to explicitly enumerate them. Like you need to be able to say, well, sometimes it does the thing where it does that, right? Like you really need to be able to explicitly name the thing and then you can fine tune it away. Um, and then, you know, you go one by one enumeratable. So a combination of that will get you 
a long way. And then obviously expectation management from the end users where you say, hey, look, here is how it works under the hood. Here is how it's trained. Here is what it does. And that means it's a statistical model and here are the consequences of it. And, you know, when you use, I don't know, when you use uh, any of these products, ChatGPT, Copilot, whatnot, you're perfectly fine with that, right? You just click regenerate once it happens. And so I think that's, that's okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, great answer. Um, and last one here from the audience. Um, so this gentleman, Sam Dixon, he's a product test engineer in Austin, Texas. And yeah, this is kind of just like a personal one, uh, in the sense of it's not really a technical question, but, um, with all the things that you do with your wildly successful YouTube channel, being an entrepreneur, how do you do more with less? How are you able to achieve all of this and not go crazy? <laughs> it's a good question. I have no idea. Um, it's just, I mean, it's get it's getting <laughs> harder, I have to say. So as more... Yeah, once once you have the responsibility for other people's literally jobs, right? Um, now obviously we we employ a lot of young people and they they're super skilled. So they're and we're in Switzerland, so no one's gonna go hungry if we fail, right? But still, it's like it's their jobs, right? So <laughs> as as you load more responsibility, it becomes harder to keep other things going but it's just you find you find some time here and there and you try to be effective and i am certainly not the best at that I'm certainly very procrastinating um but yeah it <laughs> i i don't i don't know i have i have no good answer i'm really not okay. good at time management <laughs> really bad i'm really bad procrastinator yeah. uh i could probably do five times as much if i had all of that under control but in the end, you know, you know, like when there's a deadline tomorrow and you really have to hand in that project report, it somehow gets done. Now, it would be nice if, to get these things done without lack of sleep, but it always kind of somehow gets done on time what needs to get done. So that, that, that just kind of tells you that time is kind of bendable. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, well, I don't know how to answer. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I guess, I mean, if I was to try to extract a morsel um, of a uh, self-help tip from that, it would be that um, setting deadlines helps. You know, like you can, if you, if there isn't a real deadline, um, then it's very easy to just let that procrastination uh, lead to, you know, lack of productivity. And I, I miss, I miss so many things. Like I, it's not like I get all the things done. I, I miss so many things and I'm, I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm quite disorganized. I often, if I'm overwhelmed, I stop responding to email. I, there are some sponsors that I literally haven't had the capacity to send an invoice for more than half a year now it's like it's like what is this, what is this problem to have there are people who want to give me money but they need it. so and i i just i'm like ah so don't yeah. take time management tips from me by any means <laughs> um yeah i understand um I, I think the invoice thing for me that happens as well and it's because well you know i don't i don't want to disappoint people and I know with like that one with invoicing them and then paying me, 
typically people, it, it's, it's, it's not something that's going to disappoint them <laughs> in a way that like, sure. you know, having a software release out on time matters in a startup. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I totally get that. Um, nice. Um, so yeah, so that covers the topics uh, that I wanted to cover in this episode that I thought were the, the most interesting ones to get through with you as well as the audience questions. So before I let my guests go, Yannick, I always ask for a book recommendation. Yes, um, well, it's a it's a tricky tricky question. Uh, obviously, the little book of deep learning um, it's really good by, by Francois Fleuret. I, I have it here somewhere, but I've looked for it before. It must it's in the other room. Um, no, I I apart from technical books, I also I just enjoy um, mostly nonfiction. So. I, I like, I like to, well, I just said not technical books, but I guess <laughs> I just read other technical books. Um, <laughs> none in particular though. I, I, hmm. I really liked zero to one for some reason. And I can't really even say what it is about it. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm usually not super much into yeah startup books or so on, but I really, for some reason, that that book I just list I listen to it usually. I just listen to it over and over. I don't know. Maybe it's just the reader who has a soothing voice. <laughs> I don't even know who speaks it honestly, but yeah, just yeah. just good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that book as well. Um, awesome. All right. So if people want to be following you after this episode. If they weren't already, obviously subscribing to your YouTube channel is a great way to keep up with your content. Are there any other ways that you recommend? That's the the main one. I, I yeah, we have a Discord community around the YouTube channel um, for mainly for interested people in machine learning, discussing research and so on. Uh, that's also a big big thing. Nice. All right. Well, we'll be sure to include links to those in the show notes, um, which yeah, people can get uh, from the superdatascience.com website, specifically superdatascience.com slash 733. So yeah, look out for those links and everything else, of course, discussed on the show will be there as well. Yannick, it's been a pleasure, an honor to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And yeah, hopefully we'll have the chance again, maybe some years in the future to see how your journey is coming along. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. What an experience to meet a legend like Yannick. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. In today's episode, Yannick filled us in on how the data collected for his Open Assistant project has proved to have the most long-term utility to the open source community. How blending semantic and keyword-based approaches together has proved critical to building a tool that works well at searching over swaths of legal documents. How when he got started on his PhD in 2016, it was possible to flick through all of the ML research papers that were published, but now he uses a collection of aggregators like newsletters and social media feeds to stay abreast of the biggest developments. He talked about how adversarial examples where a neural network thinks an image is wildly different despite appearing the same to a human can actually be features, not bugs. And he talked about how there's tons of room for growth in hardware capabilities, particularly robotics, in the coming years. 
As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Yannick's social media profiles, as well as my own at superdatascience.com slash 733. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Silvio, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another terrific episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we're deeply grateful to our sponsors. You can support the show by checking out our sponsors' links, which are in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johncrone.com slash podcast. Otherwise, please share, review, subscribe, and all that good stuff. It's your word to your friends, your colleagues that helps us grow this show. Um, so we really appreciate it. Thank you for any efforts you put in on our behalf, ensuring that we can continue to make amazing episodes for you for years and years to come. But more importantly than anything, we of course hope you'll just keep on tuning in. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.